0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV?
1: Hey, this is Sean Elling, regular host of Vox Conversations. But I'm here today to introduce an episode hosted by my colleague, the great Vox culture reporter and author Anne Helen Peterson. For this week's episode of Vox Conversations, Anne Helen talks with poet and novelist Patricia Lockwood all about the experience of being extremely online. They discuss a lot, like being the best internet generation, the globalized smell of fast food sandwiches, the parts of life that seem perfectly suited to the internet, and the human experiences that glitched the system. Here's Anne Helen.
2: The other day I was talking to a friend of mine about Patricia Lockwood and her new book, No One Is Talking About This. I was trying to describe to my friend how the book somehow manages to evoke the experience of being extremely online in a way that doesn't feel annoying or strident or ironic, just exactly what it feels like. But then it transforms into something so raw and real and moving to the point that I spent the final 20 pages wiping tears from my face. Well, I mean, it's Patricia Lockwood, said my friend, who's also very online. She's just the fucking best. She has the best brain out there. Unlike other people with best brains, particularly online ones, she doesn't make me feel uncool or small. Her brain is weird and twisty, brilliant and compassionate, dirty and wry. It's on display in her poetry, which is how I first encountered her. It's in her memoir, Priest Daddy. It's in her tweets, and it's in this most recent book, which I will poorly summarize as the story of a person whose brain lives on the internet, but then her sister's baby is diagnosed in utero with Proteus syndrome, and she is forced to live very much in the world. There's no names for the characters, no real use of the word I, but the book, as Lockwood herself has said, is also a form of autofiction a curious, compelling, very right now genre of writing that merges the aura of autobiography with the explicit crafting of fiction. I'm totally obsessed with this book and I am so happy to have Patricia here to talk with me about it. Hi, Patricia. Sorry if that was awkward.
0: Hi, and Helen, no, that was perfect.
2: I loved all those compliments. (laughs) So I think I've seen a lot of people start their conversations with you by asking, "What does it mean to be extremely online?" Um, sometimes these questions come from publications where I think the readership is not very familiar with that understanding of like what it means to essentially have Twitter as the backdrop of your life. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask kind of a different version of that question, which is that what did it mean to be extremely online when you were a teen, which was the same time when I was a teen in the late 90s and mm-hmm. early 2000s? Hell yeah. And how has that feeling of being extremely online changed?
0: Yeah, so I did. Well, I accidentally took a sleeping pill before my interview <laughs> with Dan Coys for Slate. <laughs> and I made a really bold claim about it, which is that we are the perfect internet generation. I believe this. I really do. Yeah. And I'm going to make that bold claim again, even though I haven't taken a sleeping pill because I believe it's true. So yeah, no, we were the people who knew what it was like to live without like the internet idol in your house. Mm -hmm. And then we were the people who saw it installed in our computer rooms, as we called it then. (laughs) And we were the people who learned to live with it through the sort of changing iterations that we saw. And I think that we're the people who maybe have been around long enough to be really appalled specifically by what is going on on right now yeah but yeah back then it was like oh it was just the wild west you could do anything I mean we're talking like you were learning these tiny bits of html so that you could like add these animations mm-hmm. to your diary land blog <laughs> um there weren't ads on anything I remember the first generation of like mommy bloggers uh-huh. who put ads on their blogs and it was a big fucking deal it was a huge deal and they were they were much hated for that <laughs> and now I mean ads are just the wallpaper that's what everything is like but it was also like okay so my dad's at church that was always my thing i was like my dad's at church I have the house to myself. (laughs) I can go in the computer room, and I can just, like, waltz into a Yahoo chat room that's dedicated to the discussion of poetry and talk to some old pervert. You know, and you were just like, that's what my night is going to be. Like, you would have a whole (laughs) night based around, like, an internet event, and that was really fun. I do think that we've lost that with the advent of smartphones. I mean, a smartphone is basically attached to your body. It's pretty much— In your bloodstream. But back then, you had an internet evening.
2: Yes. Did you have... Okay, so I had the AOL unlimited thing where you like signed up for 10 hours and then you quit and then you got a new CD and then you signed up again. Did you do that ever?
0: Yeah, we, we figured out the loopholes. But my dad was one of these early, like he was a submariner and he was an engineer. And so he figured out the computer stuff early and he would always build computers. And in the process, he would shock himself quite badly um, <laughs> in a sort of like electronic guy kind of way. So I don't know if we were as much of like an AOL family as we were again, some sort of, you know, like, janky thing that my dad had set up to just barely work. But I do remember that. Yeah, it was always like Frankenstein parts. And at some point, you'd be like working in the basement. You'd hear like, oh, damn it. Like, you know, (laughs) you'd hear the sound of him shocking himself. And it was kind of wonderful. It brought like a a great deal of atmosphere to the event.
2: I I had this book. So my mom was a, a math professor. And so she got a computer early on to try to like, I don't know, be part of the internet community through her her college. And mm. she bought a book that had like all of the different BBSs and things that you could join. Oh, yeah. And one of the things it had, I can't believe this in hindsight, is it had email addresses of prominent people. So oh, my God. I sent an email in the seventh grade, eighth grade to Bill Gates. Oh, yeah, of asking course. Him, I asked him... And I think Kurt Loder. I cc'd Kurt Loder. The two big guys. Bill Gates, Kurt Loder. And, this is the two. and I asked Bill Gates, why don't you donate more money to charity? I... <laughs> And he responded. I am not kidding you. He responded and like pointed to, you know, all of the different philanthropic stuff that he was already very involved in. Oh, so he was defensive. All right. He's like, I do give to
0: charity. But like, what a radical gesture on your part. (laughs) Uh, No, but there was something similar. Yeah, I had the Market Guide to Young Writers, uh, which again was existing in that sort of space where they were talking about like Oracle and BBSs and stuff like that. And it also contained email addresses just in in the way that it was, Like, you know, like, yeah, like you would have a website URL now, pretty much.
2: I mean, this goes back to your original point that we are the best internet generation. I think about this a lot with elder millennials relationship to their devices, just generally is that, like you said, we understood that like email used to be something that was amazing. Yeah. Like we opened up our email and we felt nothing but thrill. Yeah. And that is just totally gone.
0: And you got on it. You got on your email, like it was a life raft or something. And now the email is just piped directly into your brain, like some music from hell. And you really do feel if some, you know, email comes in at like 11.45 PM from like your agent or your publishing house or something like that, you feel like you have to answer it then. That's not something that we experienced as the perfect internet generation in that time when we had computer rooms and when we got on email. Now, what do you refer to yourself as? Are you an ex I mean, technically, Are you an elder millennial. I like that because it sounds like a druid or something wearing like a, like a <laughs> yeah. columnar cape. Yeah. So
2: I was born in 1981, which is technically like the eldest <laughs> yeah. of the elder millennials. Yeah. But I think like a lot of people in our age range, like sometimes people call it the Oregon Trail generation or. Uh, oh, that's good. I do have memories of that. Yeah. The Jordan Catalano generation. Do you know this one? See, that's not, that's too straight for me. I don't identify. (laughs) But it's like, there are parts of me that feel very Gen X and then there are parts of me that feel very strongly identified with millennials as well.
0: I mean, I watched, I watched My So-Called Life for the first time as an adult and I was like, wait, he couldn't read? This was like an after-school special and he couldn't read? And like, I guess if you're gonna choose a guy like a famous, beautiful actor who can't read, like, Jared's the guy. So I was like, it's not wrong casting. But I was still, like very shocked that that was the thing that they had built this whole show around and also that a generation of girls had apparently swooned for oh yes Um, I was like yeah no I don't relate to that but my cousin did have a Mac and she did have the old like black and green Oregon Trail uh-huh. on it, where the buffalo would lumber very slowly across the screen. Yep, And that, I guess that was my first experience, I guess, with different interfaces, because the Mac was supposed to be so much cleaner, and to have such intuitive design, and I didn't know what the fuck I was looking at. And I was like, what is this graphic? What is this icon? I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it. Um, I had no literacy, much like Jordan Catalano um, <laughs> with the English language. I ha- I didn't have that with the Mac at all. So I was I was very intrigued. So this
2: is a good segue into my next question, which is that people often say that they learned how to write and especially how to use commas and like semicolons and form sentences that work from doing reading. And I think a lot of times people are like, I learned how to use semicolons from Henry James, which means that they like learned how to write a page of text with no break. but. I think that I learned to write from a mix of like Babysitter's Club, but John Grisham novels, and my mom's Oprah book club selections, Whoa. but also reading and writing like these very long emails to friends. So I was just curious if you have thought about what books or websites or magazines taught you to write. See, I think
0: I, I predate that. I do think I go back a lot farther than that. I learned to read so early and like no one knows how I did it. It was one of those things where it was like a three-year-old baby sitting up with a newspaper. <laughs> it's Matilda, look at her. What's she doing? She doesn't understand anything she's looking at. So I was like that. And I guess my sense of voice also went back that far. So when I think about like, where did I learn to use semicolons? It was probably like humor writers. Mm-hmm. I think about guys like Gene Shepard. And I think about people People who thought a great deal about the placement of punctuation as an ornament? I guess. So no, I never felt that the internet like shaped my voice in that way. I did have like a blog fairly early on where it's almost like an intact sense of humor. I go back and it's pretty much like what I tweeted on. Twitter like in my very earliest days, which I got on Twitter and I immediately started to like live tweet the sex scenes in Bambi. And so it's like, sometimes people are like, has the internet, has Twitter like changed the way you write? And I'm like, apparently the way I write never changes and neither does my subject matter. It's just always the same. But yeah, I mean, I do think that there was a lot of, again, very Wild West humor writing that was happening on places like Diaryland, probably later Live Journal. Places like Television Without Pity, yeah. I think, were quite formative for people's like sense of criticism. Probably uh, the voices that they ended up writing criticism with. But yeah, for me, it was like Diaryland is like here's a guy like and he's pretending to be Brad Pitt for some reason. <laughs> Every day he writes an entry where he like wakes up. And, and rips a bong and, like, pretends to be Brad Pitt. And there's something really great about that. It's just like a sort of like a Montessori, like, a playroom full of kids just doing their own fucking thing, which I always like.
2: So you wrote on, like, early blogs, Did you have any, like, pen pals? Like, I used to love to get people that I met in AOL chat rooms to, like, wow. email back and forth with me because I think I just liked writing letters.
0: Um, That happened a little bit, but ultimately I don't know if I was interested enough in people to do that kind of thing. I had some real-world pen pals that, you know, you would, like, go strong for about ten letters and then it would fizzle out. But I do remember that pretty much any time something like that happened, it would turn sexy too quickly. Because I I was an idiot, and I was like, oh, okay. And they would ask you what you looked like, and you'd be like, I'm—you would basically describe yourself as a horse almost. You would be, like, shining chestnut hair, like, rolling— glorious brown eyes. I love to, you know, romp in the fields. It was, uh, you know, you were like, what does a beautiful woman look like? So yeah, I think I was probably not someone who should have been having online pen pals. It probably didn't happen until later on when I formed like relationships in the comment sections of other people's blogs.
2: So with your book, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this past year and even before that, how there are things that like the internet just is not good at processing mm. and i think that like that it glitches the system and i think prolonged grief is one of those things yeah I think that like for me I love watching when the internet immediately is trying to process something that's like delightful and absurd like Mm -hmm. Hilaria Baldwin's fake Spanish accent was a real highlight for me or when like I was partly offline for that and I was like what in the (laughs) hell are you saying to me come again yeah and it just kept getting better like when better and better she released the photo without explaining why how she had two babies within the course of six months and there was just like one (sighs) big-headed baby and one smaller-headed baby, like, right next to each other. (laughs) But then also, like, I think, you know, I felt that when the election was finally declared, and then we had the inauguration, and all of this pent-up internet energy went into, like, the Bernie Mm -hmm. meme. Like, people just could not stop. Yes.
0: It was the explosion. You know, the
2: picture of him at the inauguration when his legs are crossed, and he looks like, I don't know, everyone's grandpa and is wearing very robust mittens that look yeah. like someone's grandma knitted them. Yeah,
0: it really, for me, centers on the the mittens. And they just photoshopped him into a variety of scenarios, as we
2: would say. But this is all my long way of asking, like, what do you think the internet is good at? And what other things besides, like, prolonged grief really glitch the system?
0: Yeah, I do think that the internet is really good at, at dancing in the street. Yeah. And I, I think that we did— <laughs> see that with the Bernie. But yes, so I I do think the internet is good at, at celebrating that sort of thing and kind of all coming together to make variations on the same joke. There's something that human beings like to talk and speak and sing and cheer in unison. And I think that that really comes out in those situations. But I was talking to my husband about All of the interviews that I did for No One Is Talking About This were basically conducted around the time of the insurrection. Uh. And I was looking back and I was like, why do I sound so crazy in all of those? And then I was like, oh, yeah, remember? I mean, even the earlier ones where it was like they, they were still contesting certain states and there was this sense of uncertainty. You knew it was a long shot, but there was this miasma of fear hanging in the air culminating on January 6th. And that's when I was doing all of this book promotion. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, having having these conversations with these people all over the world. And I sounded completely unhinged. And then it got to a point, yeah, it probably was around the time of the Bernie meme where you did feel like you could take a little bit of a breath. And it was almost a, a, a sort of hysteria. Hysteria is one of those words that I don't find useful applied to individual people, but I find it useful applied to the group. I I certainly think that what we see on the internet, we see, you know, instantiations of like positive and negative hysterias.
2: Well, I think, you know, during the insurrection too, there's this very American and very capitalist impulse to like try to keep working and this was true yeah. all through <laughs> November and December, you're like, yep. oh, well, like, I feel I like shit, but I need to keep trying to be productive and then also feeling bad for not keeping up with those productivity levels when everything, everything is telling you, stop working. Like, you can't, yeah. you cannot Go hibernate this.
0: like a bear. Like, no one can do this. That is part of the thing that you talk about. Like, the burnout, the exploitation, you know, the depredations of, of capitalism. Yeah,
2: yes. Like, sometimes the body says no. Yeah. And this I think we are bad at listening to that and bad at responding to that and oftentimes feel guilty when the body says no.
0: Yeah. I think I canceled like two things, and I felt such a sense (laughs) of accomplishment. I was like, yes. And then of course I rescheduled them both later. Like you didn't actually end up getting the cancellation that you so desired. It was just that momentary lifting where it was like, okay, I can I can take a little breath. But it all happened then. I I know that I'll look back on this period and, and probably not remember a single thing um, because it was just so yeah. unprecedented.
2: Yeah. I mean, I even look back now on November and think what was happening. I don't remember. It in all world. feels like a blur. I don't
0: remember any of that. And part of that is because I was taking a lot of anti-anxiety medication at that time. Yes. But I was like, I wrote a piece about this for the London Review of Books. That also sounds completely unhinged. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to be glad in the future that I did these things, that I did push through, that I did work. I mean, I like to work. I like the work that I have chosen. I like to set myself to these tasks. Uh, And I'm going to be grateful, I think, that I did these things. But in the moment, you do look around and you think, what the hell am I doing?
2: Well, I think both you and I, our response to these feelings is to write through it and to mm-hmm. me that's different than tweeting through it right like I very different yes I, I like to give shape to something I even wrote a piece that's like how to work through the insurrection mm-hmm. like how impossible <laughs> it is but like my yeah. impulse at, at seeing that impossibility was to write a piece yeah. was to work exactly but it made sense to me it made me feel actually alert to what was happening
0: yeah. I mean, you, you are solving these inner problems that are set for you, that you set for yourself. Like, yesterday morning, I was having just the most amazing—I was sitting on my new screened-in porch. I was reading A.S. Bayat's uh, Peacock and Vine. Ah. I was looking at a, a book of textiles, and I was feeling absolutely whole and intact as a person. And I got on Twitter for, like, five minutes. <laughs> saw that there had been another mass shooting. I was like, fuck, you're gonna, like, what? Somebody's gonna kill me one day in a King's Supers? And completely thrown out of any sense of self that I might have had. And I do believe that we should know about these things. I don't think that we should hide in a hole necessarily. Like, I think that there is some reason for us to continue checking in. But yes, the sense of disconnect or just being so physically jarred, being thrown out of your body when you encounter those things is is very intense.
2: Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, I want to return to this idea that the internet is just incompatible with some life experience. Like, it can be very soothing post-election to riff on the Bernie Sanders mittens, but at the same time, there are some things that are just really difficult to process online. Things like prolonged grief. It's like a glitch in the system. That's after the break. So to come back to this idea of grief as just totally incompatible with some ways of life online, I think that there are some expressions of grief that can really take root online and be processed in different ways. But I think prolonged grief is really hard, which makes me think of the part of the book where the niece of the protagonist is born and she's in intensive care. She's not doing well. So, what is it about the internet that makes this sort of prolonged processing of sadness and grief really difficult? I think it was difficult for me because,
0: with my niece, I did want to talk about her online. Mm -hmm. I did want to put her picture in the stream of things, as the protagonist says in the book. Um, She talks so much about wanting people to see her. And that's something I couldn't do because she was not my daughter. So I wouldn't have felt that it was my place. There have been, you know, high profile instances of people who have had sick children, sick family members who opened up about those things online. And that has been really profound and has made people feel very connected to them. So I don't think that it's always a glitch. But this was a situation that returned me so intensely to my body. All you could be doing was existing in that NICU. You Mm -hmm. were in the waiting room, you were scrubbing yourself down, and you were putting your phone physically in a ziplock into a plastic bag so that you couldn't contaminate any of these children whose immune systems were compromised or who were ill. So I was removed almost by force from that place. And your body existed for its original reasons. You existed to hold this child, Uh, you existed almost to be a mother to her in a way that becomes very complicated when the character's father says, you know, that you were made to do this. Basically, why didn't you ever do this? Why didn't you ever have children yourself? You know, she doesn't answer him, but she does recognize in some part that this is what the body is for. It is for care, that your hands can be useful, that your arms can be useful, uh, that you can be breathing out something that the child is taking in. And it's hard to do that, I think, at the remove of the internet. For me personally, when I walked into the NICU, I understood immediately why someone would do this with their life. Mm -hmm. You know, I had never thought about being a nurse before. I don't think anyone wants me as their nurse. Um, Like I'm like accidentally yanking a tube out and someone is dying pretty quickly because of a mistake that I personally made. Uh, I had never thought about it, but I went into that place and it was a place of calm and it was a place of care. And it was a place, as you said, of existing in the moment of absolute attention to the present time. And I thought that this is a place that I could live in.
2: I know that you had COVID earlier this year and you wrote about it, right? And you also wrote for the London Review of Books about processing all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, do you feel like writing is a salve in this capacity, especially for something like grief?
0: Yeah, I had COVID actually last March. So it was the time when we did not know what it was. We thought that it was transmitted through surfaces. And I was like, sure, I can get on this plane and fly to Harvard. And I'll be fine as long as I wash my hands one million times, which of course makes no sense in retrospect. (laughs) We knew that it was a respiratory virus. Why would it not be, you know, like an airborne transmission? So it was really the first wave of those people who got that. Mm -hmm. And the strange part is that when I was writing the LRB piece, I was very paranoid about the fact that I was still experiencing symptoms because we didn't really know that long COVID was a thing yet. So I was like, okay, like my arms and legs are numb and I can't feel my face and these things are still going on. But I had this absolute paranoia about writing about them because I thought people would think that I was complaining Mm. or lying. I mean, we see what happens to women who talk about chronic illness, to people who talk about disability, all of these things, like, you know what happens to you. So there was no sense yet that it was a widespread phenomenon. And then the stories started accruing And then you look back and think you're glad that you did that because you are adding your voice, you know, to the chorus. You are saying, this is what happened to me. I think that that is an important thing to do. But also looking back, it is complete madness that I was trying to write anything during that
2: time. But even just, you know, writing it makes it visible. And I think that, like, there are long-term effects to what writing it will do and the comfort and, and visibility that it provides for others.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if that is part of the original impulse. Uh, What I was probably thinking was, I'm contracted to write four pieces (laughs) a year for the LRB, but I was also at that point thinking about documentation. I was Mm -hmm. going back through my photo roll and thinking, why don't I remember any of the pictures that I saved when I was sick? Uh, Why do I have this file that I thought was this very detailed diary of the experience? And I opened it up and it was like 270 (laughs) words that are, uh, I have no idea what they mean. Like, why were those things happening? So yeah, it is something that, that you do to make sense of the things that have happened to you. It's something you do to make sense of the world. I do think that I would still do it, you know, if no
2: contract existed. So this brings to mind something that I, it's really going to stick with me in the book, which is that the subject of late term abortion comes in about a little little more than halfway through the sister's pregnancy in the book has become super high risk and in Ohio it's very difficult even impossible to obtain a third trimester abortion even when the mother's health is in danger and i was just so struck by the way that the main character's father deals with this because mm-hmm. he essentially has to deal with the reality of his politics that He's so sure, oh, there has to be an exception right. for you, my daughter, Right. even though the way that he has talked about those politics, endorsed those politics, voted for people with those politics would ensure that there is no exceptions ever. Mm-hmm. And in a recent interview with The New Yorker, you talked about the ways that exploring this issue touches on this weird consideration of like an almost alternative life, that if you'd followed this trajectory of your youth— and turned out like your dad uh, or righteous in the belief that these partial birth abortions are the work of like abortion loving doctors, like you could be in a very different position and attitude, like there's just this alternative life. And so my question then is what other alternative timeline existences shadow you? I think about this too in the book, there's a part where a friend of the main character just kind of offhandedly observes in the fifties, we would have been housewives.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would have been a housewife (laughs) in the 50s. I mean, I don't think that's the route I would have taken. But yeah, for me, this was really crystallized with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett Mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court because I was like, okay, so everything about the way I was raised would have taught me to see this woman as a savior and the fulfillment of our hopes and dreams and to just be cheering when she finally sat on the bench. And so the compound horror that I felt, you know, not just that she actually made it, uh, believing the things that I now believe, But thinking about my past self and the propaganda, the brainwashing that I had experienced and how differently I would have seen that woman. But you know, this is, I see this every day. My sister, my older sister, is a traditional Catholic, and she continued on the path that I think both of us started out on when we were like God's gang teenagers, Mm -hmm. when we were extremely charismatic Catholics who were very genuinely faithful. It's interesting for me to see what that has sort of turned into, because a lot of these people are now Trump people. And you would think that they were absolutely diametrically opposed, these two sets of values. But people are able to square things that you wouldn't think that they would be able to square. So sometimes you can see that shadow life. You can say, you know, I would have continued on this path. But then at some point, maybe when, you know, someone like Donald Trump is like the nominee for the president of the United States, the Republican nominee, I would have seen the light. But you actually don't know. You don't know that that is true. So, yeah, I think about it all the time. That is the main one for me. uh, I think it's so clear. It was really a situation where I was walking in the woods and there was like a forked path. It wasn't like it was a multiple branching situation where I could have taken any two paths. It was like I could continue to choose to believe these things or I could walk the other way.
2: Yeah, you know, I went to the March for Life. Did you ever go to one of those when you were a kid? I actually didn't but my
0: friends would go. We didn't my mom didn't have the sort of organizational capacities that would have allowed for something like that. But yes, my youth group friends would go to things like that for sure. So,
2: I went there to report. This was just after Donald Trump's election mm-hmm. cuz I was really interested in seeing like the makeup of the people who would be there. And it was very clear to me too that it, this is the one in DC. There are also smaller March for Life's all over the United States, but the one in DC really kind of functions as like a youth group weekend, like a, a time to go yeah. hang out with your friends and, like, flirt <laughs> right. a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. But there were people who were just very much, like, anti-abortion, kind of the, the straight-up, hardline, chanting just slogans without really any sort of articulation or elaboration. And then I was always drawn— to, like, the Jesuits Mm -hmm. who would have posters that were about the idea that, like, if you are anti-abortion, you also have to be pro-life in all of these other capacities. Right. And that means, like, pro-immigrant, right? It means, like— things that sometimes progressive would claim as their own, but that I think... Right, anti-death yes. penalty is
0: particularly the yeah. one.
2: Yeah. yeah, and also things like anti-harvesting of eggs, and the IVF and that yes. sort of thing. It's very complicated. Yes,
0: it, it gets all up in there. But yeah, being attracted to the sort of the Jesuit viewpoint there, that's the sign that you're going to break free and become an intellectual or gay, <laughs> basically, in the future. That's like what's going to happen for you. There are all these indicators looking back around it, like my youth group circle. I'm like, well, I knew it was going to happen to you this is where you were going to go. There were some surprises, but for the most part, like we did take the prescribed paths that you would have thought that we would
2: have. (laughs) So what percentage of your youth group is still with the church? Um, I would say a pretty, pretty
0: high proportion. Some of them, the weird thing is that not all of them are still Catholic. So there are people who are now like quiverful. Oh, really? And like believe that the husband is like the unquestioned head of the household. um, Yeah. Things like that. I was talking to my little sister on the phone and she was saying that uh, one family she knew, like one of the sons had broke in contact with his family 15 years ago and become a Scientologist. So there was something about that little specific cul-de-sac that I was raised in. There was this special little delta that, I don't know, is this kind of like fervid haven for that kind of thinking, um, this area of extremity.
2: So I was raised in a mainline... Presbyterian Church in a small town in Idaho that also, like a lot of, I think, mainline churches in the late '90s, early 2000s, had this like charismatic bent where yeah, some people raised their hands when they sang. That was kind of the extent of the okay, the All physical. Right. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, but then lots of ideas about abstinence and purity and, you know, just the sort of more commodified understandings of evangelical culture that I think of. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing today is I would say three-fourths of that youth group has either left the church entirely or has found, like, very progressive corners of other churches. Interesting. A much better outcome for you guys. Now, but as soon as you said that it was, like, kind
0: of a sexy weekend to go to the Right to Life march, then I knew. So it's kind of the same thing, you know, that John Jeremiah Sullivan essay, Rock of Ages, where he talks about going to the big Christian rock festival. It's kind of like that. I was like, we were not a sexy group. Um, It was like— So manifestly, profoundly unsexy. I mean, we had the purity cards. Did you like sign the little abstinence pledge? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you just like carry around like a driver's license. (laughs) Nobody's driving this car. Yeah. So we did that sort of thing, but I don't know. It was almost a little bit freakier than that. So I do think that there was something at work in that area that was a little different than than the typical. But yeah, it was the same for us. We were Catholics, but we were charismatic. Mm -hmm. So it was just sort of a charismatic movement. People definitely raised their hands in the air while they were singing, but they also spoke in tongues. So there were much cultier aspects to it as well.
2: This is such an incredible break from what we're talking about, but I don't know, mm. maybe not, especially because one of the things I love about the book is like the fragments, just like the internet, mm-hmm. you know, one thing piles on top of one another without any sort of sense or direction or interlude. But I want to talk about my favorite observation of the book on a more, I don't know, trivial level, which is that the smell of Subway sandwiches has been globalized. God. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. I mean, that's the one
0: that has the ring of truth. We literally were, it was London, and it was, I don't, fucking know where it was. I'm going to act for a second like I knew. It was by the river, (laughs) Anne Helen. It was like, I was like the river was there. And we walked into this sort of like underground tunnel area and I smelled it. And it was so unmistakable what it was. And I was like, how has it made it here? (laughs) And then when I went to other places like Australia, New Zealand, it was like Subway made it to those places. And then of course you think of the piece about it, how, you know, like Subway is this world dominant Mm -hmm. sandwich shop brand, which is not something that I knew about it before, but you experience it viscerally. You go to these
2: other places and you smell that bread. You know, because I think McDonald's, which actually is not as globalized as Subway. Yeah. McDonald's is just kind of the smell of grease, right? Like And sugar. It's like a sweet smell. Yes. But yeah, what is that Subway smell? I think it's the bread. I think it's the sweet bread. Like they put a lot of sugar in the bread.
0: <laughs> and well, and they're also trying to like fake it out that it's really like
2: home-baked,
0: yeah. right? Yes. And so they're like, oh, come in. We're like baking this bread right now for your sandwich. You
2: but that, <laughs> I smelled it. And really the idea of its global power was driven home when I was in Myanmar, which had only recently opened to Western businesses. And they had a Subway and a KFC in downtown Yangon. You just are like, really? <laughs> Those are the first two. But did you go in there? Like, so what were the sandwiches like? They would be different? No, I did not go in there because I hate when you go in Subway and then the smell like accumulates on you. You know, you smell like well, it's sandwich. true. It
0: sticks on your clothes. But I would be interested. I'd be like, oh, like, what are the sandwiches? <laughs> you know, like, if there's like a different sandwich in Myanmar, then I'm going to try that. I do like that too. So it is like very capitalist. It's like this behemoth that is like eating the entire globe. Then it's also like, what are the different sandwiches? I don't know. Let's give it a try.
2: But this is one of the observations that I think is so sticky on the internet. Like, it circulates. Mm -hmm. It's like a piece of trivia that becomes uniquely fascinating. And it's endless. Like, there is an endless supply of interesting tidbits. And we used to find them... This is again in the book. We used to find them in like the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, we found those in the Guinness (laughs) Book, baby. Yep. Did you know? Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, you bought at the school book fair. And my mom was like, are you really spending your money on
0: that? Uh, Little did she know that was the best (laughs) bang for your buck. You could just endlessly go in there and just look at that picture of the guy with the fingernails. The fingernails. And again and again and again.
2: Well, and that's, you know, I think that that is somewhat lost is the idea that there is like a discrete amount of... Interesting information, and in it is all piled into one book. Mm-hmm. And if you just like study it enough, you will know everything that's interesting about the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are like all precursors to the internet. The Encyclopedia Britannica that I had in my childhood bedroom—that's a precursor. You know, the fact that I would sit there and I, I would read that as if it were actual literature—that's <laughs> that's all a precursor to my internet usage. Yeah.
2: So I sometimes really like the passivity of the internet. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's any different than watching endless Nick at Night when I was a kid. Um, right. But then I also resent how easy it is to default to it. Like, you know, you were describing this experience on your screen porch where like everything was balanced and you were a whole person. And then suddenly like it's whatever twitch or habit of your hand, you look on your phone and I do this all the time. And it, I think it numbs me to like what Nico Case calls that teenage feeling. Like I don't spend enough time just like staring at the ceiling listening to a sad song <laughs> or feeling like... Yeah.
0: Or being bored. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like boredom, we've completely relinquished and boredom is very fertile ground for writing. And I have noticed that actually the moment when my hand twitches for my phone is when I feel the happiest. It's when I feel the most intact in this yeah. you know, paradise I've set up for myself of thinking, of writing, of books. And I'm experiencing this perfect happiness. And then I go pick the apple and I eat it, right? <laughs> it's the temptation that is offered to Eve. And I'm I'm like all right, let's just see what's going on in the world today, and then it's like, yeah, King Supers. It's whatever you know is is going on that day. Yeah, you almost always regret it. I mean, there are the Bernie meme days, but then there are these other days that seem to proliferate. Yeah,
2: it's like the same as when you eat an entire thing of cotton candy. Like you always feel worse afterwards, yeah. even though it looks so tantalizing. Yes,
0: and also we know that it's insubstantial, right? Like, it's how much sugar can there be in that thing? It's fine if I just like stuff the whole water. (laughs) In my mouth. It's like this sense of the internet. It's like, surely you'll come to the end of it at some point, right?
2: Someone found the end of the internet the other day. They, like, said that they had, like, read everything that there could be read in some capacity. And I felt so happy for them that they had found the end of their internet. Good
0: for you. Just (laughs) good for you finding the end of the internet. Did they tell people about it? Or is it, like, one of those, like, a mystical door (laughs) that no one can know about? I don't—don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. I'm going to find it myself. Okay,
2: along these lines, in the book, the baby, when the baby is born— breaks the internet spell to some capacity. Yeah. Like there's this baby and her beautiful life and people just feel like a gravity to her in the same way that they often feel a gravity when it comes to their phones but I also think in some ways that's like a very facile read of it too because I love the moment at the end of the book when the main character is in the hospital with the baby and just starts scrolling her phone looking at Jason Momoa photos you know
0: (laughs) right which is not even something I care about again like that body does not move me at all I'm not even like really a straight person (laughs) why am I looking at Jason Momoa pics in this situation it is something you do to self-soothe though It's almost like I picked up my pacifier and popped it in my mouth.
2: So are humans in some ways the antidote to the internet, but the internet is also the antidote to humans? I mean, I think that's the best we can do, right? (laughs) Everyone's like, what's
0: the takeaway? What's the lesson? Like, get off the internet, but maybe it's also the source of all human connection. It's like, you know what? If we want to try it, that's as good as any. I mean... I think the takeaway in this book or I, I think that the thing you can really point to is the fact that she is so urgently experiencing this moment, you know, that this life is opening up for her like a flower, but that she also wants to put it online. Yeah. And she knows that the way that she can do that is to put a picture of the baby in the portal. And that is what at some bone deep level she really, really wants to do. So it's not so easy to say, you know, we just all need to flee the Internet and like start taking care of babies and NICUs again. Right. Like, Is that what we were doing before? It's not what I was previously doing right. before I was on the internet. So that's not the solution. But yeah, I mean, the solution is, is just that we have to think about it more just like, what is that desire? And to really look at this place where you can put an image and suddenly it's in everyone's eye.
2: You know, I think of it too, as like when people ask me about burnout and what you can do about burnout, I'm like, I can't freaking solve, but no one, like capitalism is the problem, right?
0: It's interesting for me, too, because I'm on the spectrum, so I don't think about burnout, but I think about shutdowns. So I never had a thing where I, like, melted down. I wouldn't, like, you know, scream in public or anything like that, even though you you might want to do something like that. But I would go completely silent. I would be mute, and I would not talk to people. And I would think about that in terms of of shutdown once I had the language for that. But I think it's a very similar thing. I mean, I think it's something that human beings experience. You just get to that point— and you go silent or you start to scream, you know, one of those other two Mm -hmm. things. But I've noticed too that I do it on the internet. Like there are times when I cannot talk on the internet. So I also, I guess, am selectively mute in those situations as well, which is kind of fascinating.
2: Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, a lot of the reviewers and write-ups about Patricia Lockwood call her work the internet sublime. So when Patricia herself hears the word sublime, what does she think of? We'll find out after the break. So I can't tell you how many times I've read in reviews and interviews with you, people describing your work just generally as... The Internet Sublime. So I want to know what you think when you hear the word sublime. Has that happened more than once? (laughs) I was like, holy crap, really? Yes, (laughs) it is. Like the overarching understanding of your work is like the Internet Sublime. And I think there's a lot of work going on there in terms of like English poets and the sublime and connecting you to that work and that sort of thing. But when you hear the word sublime, what does it make you think of? Uh, The 90s band. No, I mean (laughs) like—
0: We still play that in the car. Actually, my husband is on like, I think he got so stressed out during the election that he went into this insane reggae period where now all he listens to is classic reggae. Like I get in the car and it's like Muta Baruka, any which way. And I'm like, oh my God, Sublime just completely like ripped off all of this classic reggae and dub, like, which I didn't fully understand when I was a teenager. But like, yeah, that pins us, I think, to the micro generation as well, the perfect internet generation where it's like, I can still sing all of those songs at the top of my lungs. I like know, like, Bradley's harmony to those things. <laughs> I have like the image of the album cover with like the tattoo on his back. Yeah, so you called that one. You did call it.
2: <laughs> well, and I think too, do you think that like people who are growing up with music now have that same sort of, like, deep, deep identification with a band particularly. Because I know what happens with a song, right? Like, there are these songs that are incredibly popular that become the soundtrack to TikTok things. Like, I'm not saying that people don't have relationships to music in the same way. But I do think that there's a different relationship with, like, albums and bands and a sound. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that there is a different relationship with albums for
0: sure. But I think that the identification with artists might have actually strengthened because they do have these online presences. Mm. Anyone who's ever had a run-in with the Swifty army online, like, knows that that is true. Oh my gosh, have you? Because I have. No, I mean, I would never have. Wait, what happened to
2: you? Are you alive still? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Did you make I it? I actually think Taylor Swift is really interesting, like, just from a celebrity analysis perspective. Right. But, like, this is the problem with doing the work that I do when it comes to celebrities is that there is this understanding that anytime you do analysis that you are hating on a celebrity, right?
0: Hating on them, yes, <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs>
1: I love
2: that idea. <laughs> Have you attracted the ire of any particular fandom ever? Um, figure skating stands I did
0: one time. It wasn't that intense, but I did write about like, you know, Jason Brown and sort of, you know, that he didn't have the technical capacity of some of these other skaters. And they're very, very hot, 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 hot feelings about figure skaters, which I didn't really know. I was just coming at it from sort of like a dance perspective and just like finding the point system interesting. But that would be the most, and I was just really more bewildered by it than anything. Like, I don't know what would happen if the Swift army came after. But it also happened to you, too, with—didn't it happen with Army Hammer as well? Oh, yeah. that that Which is like, that's taken on a new dimension of meaning, hasn't it? Well, like, and that—I
2: <laughs> wonder if you have this with any of your writing, when you have something that is inadvertently kind of prescient, right? That you, like, touch on something mm-hmm. before it becomes part of a more national yes. understanding of how we feel about— Something or someone. Um, yes, that
0: that definitely happens. And then it comes back around as if you saw into the future. I mean,
2: I even think, you know, the first place that I read you, like a lot of people was with your poem, The Rape Joke. Yeah. And that to me feels very early in this more recent understanding and conversation about sexual assault.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and to the extent that when people ask me about it, they don't even use the words me too. They don't because it predated that. And I think that they think of me as belonging to a slightly earlier class. Of course, this thing goes back all the way. I always cite Maya Angelou specifically. She is the first place where a lot of us read about rape and we read about it as kids. And it is a very straightforward, stark depiction that stays with a lot of us. Maggie Nelson has written about this. Actually, it's like it becomes a seed of fantasy for some people. Uh, just because these are some of the first most straightforward depictions that we see of these things. But she did that work a long time ago. So there's always, again, a new iteration of this kind of thing. But yeah, it was before that movement broke in such a way that it was assigned a hashtag, which is so alien to me Right to to think about that these stories existing in that channel, that channel of a hashtag. Because my, I've only ever used hashtags in an ironic way. <laughs> I would absolutely never use a hashtag in any sort of sincere way because it's well, I don't even know why it's so silly to me, but it's it's a matter of taste. It's one of my Jane Austen things where it's like, you're using the wrong fucking fork, put that down. <laughs> and I would never do that. <laughs> or
2: when people use a hashtag on every word, they're like... Yeah. Hashtag save, hashtag the, hashtag children. But that's
0: an Instagram thing, right? Yeah. So it's really like the crossing of, of different streams of media. Like, I don't participate in Instagram at all. Like, why would I want to see something when I could read it? Thank you very much. <laughs> like, I'm not exposing myself to that garbage. Um, but you recognize that, that when that is imported to a place like Twitter, that that's actually what's going on. It's cross-contamination, probably, is what we should, well, what we should as, call it. So I think
2: about, like, Maya Angelou and, and I Know Why the bird Sings, which, yes, that was absolutely my favorite first experience with a depiction of sexual assault. And I have a very vivid memory of like where I was when I read that. It was a very private experience. Yeah. It was not a book that we read in class because yeah. that would not be okay in my public high school. Yeah, or I think I was in junior high, but it is private. And I think one of the things that your poem did, because it was published on a website, mm-hmm. right? Is it traveled differently. Yes, absolutely. It lived differently. And people, I think, were fascinated by it and scared of it and didn't know, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you tweet a link to it, right?
0: Oh, man, I remember Corey, actually, that all had some sort of like technical glitch
2: that day. So you mean Corey Sika, the editor-in-chief of The All at that time?
0: Yeah. And it maybe went down, and he had intended to tweet a link to it. And when the site came up, he's like, and when we were offline, I, I was about to tweet this link to this, and it was like, ellipsis, ellipsis, this, oh, dear. And it was just like a link to my poem. Um, and it was like, yeah, how do you do that? Yes. And I think it, I like to exist in that uneasy space where people don't necessarily know what to think of me. Or to know whether I'm being funny or not. This actually happens more um, in real spaces when I'm reading to real audiences. There's something confrontational about me that I don't necessarily feel when I'm writing that maybe comes out more when I read. And people don't always know how to respond. So yeah, I, that, I think that must be some place that is productive for me, that is creative, and that is maybe also like the most useful place for me to work or talk about because how are we supposed to feel about these things?
2: Yeah, I think making people sit in their discomfort and especially, okay, what happens when these very real feelings, right? When this very real trauma is attempted to be processed on the internet right. and how how incomplete that processing is if it's only completed on the internet.
0: And I think it was still possible for people to have a private experience of that poem, yeah. even though it was happening in the most public space on Earth. I mean, I think that is how you know, like, writing can travel that way. It can remain real writing, even in this place. But there is, uh, I think, a quality maybe of sermon writing about me, too, where I am maybe confronting people with something, with what I feel are truths, with my own voice, with my own experience, maybe. But there is something about me that I do feel gets up in the pulpit a little bit and doesn't exactly give a sermon but puts on a different voice.
2: In 2018, you wrote that if I look at my phone first thing, the phone becomes my brain for the day. And do you feel like that's still true or do you feel like it's changed since 2018? I think
0: it's even worse. I think it's even more encompassing. Like it also (laughs) becomes my body. Like I actually, like it extends its anxiety into the fibers of my nerves. Yeah, it's absolutely still true. I still think the best thing, the best prescription is to read a physical book first thing. I have no idea why it's better. I think there are just more like tactile, sensual vectors. I mean, I'm not going to be like, and then I'm smelling my book and I'm burying my nose and I'm drinking in its fragrance. But yeah, you can smell a book. You can feel it. The fonts look different. You know, one page is dog-eared. All of these are things which add up to memory, which add up to the experience of reading a book. They're things that you attach to the story. Yeah, I found out in the last couple of years that I had been reading on my Kindle and I was like not remembering the books at all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hmm Yes, totally. This happens yeah. to me. Yes.
0: And then I was like, all right, I'm going back to physical books, but of course you get the Kindle because you can read it on an airplane. I mean, what I've been doing for the past couple of years, I'm not sure if you travel as much for your job, but yeah, I was doing a ton of traveling all over the world. And like, that's what you do. That's how you make sure that you have enough books in your freaking bag, right? Because that was always
2: a problem before. Because <laughs> otherwise you need to bring 10, like this
0: is yes. a real thing. <laughs> and that's too heavy. We're all like, you know, Cheryl Strait or something. It's like, oh, my pack's too heavy. Oh, I need to like, burn these pages at night. No, I have a Kindle now, so I don't even have to think about that.
2: But it also evaporates in your brain. That's what I find. 100%. And I, you know, there was an option when I was trying to get your book, like, I can get a digital version very quickly. And I said, no way, like, there's no way I am reading this book Mm -hmm. on the portal.
0: I think you got to read it (laughs) in hardcover, baby. It's more expensive too.
2: (laughs) Well, I read no one is talking about this in two sittings in a way that completely wrested me from the hold of the internet. Like it was all consuming in a way that I crave, right? In a way that makes me feel like a person, (laughs) feel like a balanced and whole and present person in the world. And I can't thank you enough for that or for our conversation today. It was such a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you so much, and Helen. Thank you for having me.
1: This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. Thanks so much for listening.